invite you to turn in your Bible tonight to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and while you're doing that, just want to again greet those who are visiting with us. It's just great to be here together on Sunday night. Young people, thanks for helping us out in the worship and the singing, and good to see our, uh, it's great to see our New City brothers and sisters here with us. Uh, Sunday night always feels like family reunion, and I just love... Um, we come together and close out the day as we open the Word of God and let the Lord feed us again and worship Him together. 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm just going to read the first two verses as we consider our identity tonight as those who belong to Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, let's pick it up, verse 1, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, thank you that you delight in teaching us through this, your holy word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've come to illuminate this word and to speak it into our hearts. I pray, Father, that tonight we would have the grace to see it, receive it, see all that you are, all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus, and that tonight, Lord God, you would assure us, and may your grace and peace be multiplied to us as we open the Scripture together. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a question tonight, and the question is a simple question, and that is, who are you? Who are you? If uh, someone would up, just come up and ask you that question, I think most of you would respond uh, and you'd give your name. Uh, and they say, no, no, who really are you? You might be a little befuddled and um, say, well, I'm you know, part of this family, uh, belong to this town, I go to this school. Uh, if they continue to press, you'd probably talk about where you work, um, maybe some of your hobbies. And all those things are true. All those things are part of who you are. But uh, tonight, Peter is addressing the uh, people of God scattered throughout the uh, world of his day. And he wants them to know with absolute clarity precisely who they are, what is true of them by virtue of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what is incredibly, wonderfully, gloriously noteworthy about them. And what's noteworthy about them is that they are the elect children of God. One of the great blessings of Scripture is that God has given us this book so that we can know who we are. It's given to reveal to us all that we are and all that is ours because of what God has done to us and for us in Christ. We, we so easily lose our identity or get confused about, about our identity. We let the world define us. If you would ask the world, who are uh, these Christians? The world would say, well, there's, there's these people who are just sort of strung out on some strange uh, ideas and religion. Uh, they think that if you are going to be spiritual, you've got to go to church. You've got you to do these various things. They're very close-minded. Um, they don't have much fun. The world would uh, define you that way, and we often let the world sort of define us, and I think we're going to experience that pressure of that more and more as our culture gets increasingly uh, secular and pagan. But we let our own condemning hearts define us. We let the, uh, the words of our own just 
condemning heart when we've sinned, we've failed, and, and our hearts speak to us about that. We will oftentimes will let our hearts define us. We let our weaknesses and failures define us. We let our circumstances define us. Well, Paul, Peter wants us to remember precisely exactly who we are, to remind us of our status and our identity. We are God's elect exiles. We are by the sovereign, predestining, ordaining love and grace of God the Father. We are God's elect children and heirs of everlasting life. And that truth is meant to be a foundation for our life. That truth is meant to be a rock that we stand on. It's, uh, it's meant to, to lift us up and encourage us and comfort us and bless us no matter what our circumstances. If I were to ask you tonight, how are you feeling about your Christian life? Are, are you excited about being a Christian? Are you enthused about all that is yours in Christ? Are you just thrilled about what God's doing in your life? Well, we, we have those experiences Praise God we have those experiences, but isn't it true that we often have the experience of just sort of plodding on ahead, uh, doing the best we can, striving to believe, battling with unbelief? Well, tonight we're going to see that um, we have something so wonderful given to us in this, uh, in this letter and in this truth of God's electing grace and love. We're going to see that no matter what our circumstances, grace and peace can be our experience multiplied to us. But if that's going to happen, we have to understand our place in the world. We have to understand who we are in uh, the eyes of God and because of God. And so just two main points tonight. I'm just looking uh, very specifically at this uh, thought uh, that we are the elect exiles. Uh, I preached on 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, for our Easter service and uh, just really fell in love with the book again and I'm planning on doing a short um, series on 1 Peter, though we might take a break this summer and jump into uh, the Psalms. Um, that, that works really well for a, a, a summer series as well. So It'll be 1 Peter or the Psalms in the evening. That's where we're headed. But we're going to look at uh, this, this topic, this idea of being elect exiles. Elect exiles. So let's just look at Peter's words. To so those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion, in, and he names these various uh, provinces in Asia Minor. If you were to think today, this would be the area of Turkey. All right, what is now known as the nation of Turkey. Uh, Asia Minor was in those days considered the outskirts of civilization. Greece uh, and, and Rome, uh, those were the, the uh, center posts of Western civilization. Asia Minor is backwoods. It's sort of the Wild West. It is um, the far-flung outskirts. So when Jesus said, go, you, go ye into Jerusalem and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world, this is what the apostles would have been thinking. Wow, uttermost parts of the world, even Asia Minor. And um, it was rural. It was um, tribal. It was very pagan. You could think of, of uh, Africa back you know, maybe 100 years ago or maybe 50 years ago or the jungles of the Amazon forest. We're very tribal, very rural, and thoroughly pagan. Uh, commentators have noted that the, the provinces that Peter speaks and addresses here, they're very different from one another ethnically and uh, socially, religiously. They really are very, very different people groups, and yet Peter addresses them as one family. Uh, the gospel has gone out, and Jesus, by his Holy Spirit and the word of the gospel, has been gathering 
people from every tongue and tribe and nation in that day. And so Peter addresses them as the elect exiles gathered from these far-flung regions. And he wants them to know that he is writing to them as, as though they were his brothers and sisters. Remember who's writing? Peter, the head of the, um, the early church in many ways, certainly the head of the Jewish church. He's the head of the church in Jerusalem. And he's, he's using a Jewish term to speak uh, to them, identifies them as, in a sense, God's people in that way. If you remember your Old Testament history, the dispersion was a, a term used to refer to the Jews when they were taken into captivity. And so they were scattered. They were cast out of the land of Israel, and they were brought to Babylon. They were to seek the peace of that city. God commanded them to do that. But they were living in a, in a nation, a place that was not their native home. They were there as aliens, in that sense, resident aliens, as sojourners, looking to get back to the city that God had promised to them. And so when Peter now applies this to Gentile Christians, it can be a little confusing because they're not Jewish, and they're, they're living in the, in the towns and cities where they grew up. They're not exiles. They haven't been kicked out of their homelands in that sense. So why does Peter call them sojourners and resident aliens? Well, it's because their citizenship has changed. Now, once they were not a people, now they are a people. They have become, by the power of God, through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they have become citizens of a new kingdom. They've been born again, you see, into a new kingdom nation, a new status. So heaven now is their homeland. They are no longer, in that sense, belong to the towns that they grew up in. They live in the world, but they don't belong to it. They're spiritual pilgrims, and that has always been true of the people of God. If you just think back through your Old Testament, God's people have almost always lived not at home, right? They have a history of not living at home. So Abraham is called to leave his home, go into a land of the land that was not his own, land of Canaan, as a resident alien. Israel in Egypt, living there for 400 and some years as resident aliens. Israel in the wilderness, they're not at home. They have no rest there. Israel in the land of promise. Well, there they finally get to their home, but it, it doesn't work out well. I've been reading through um, the books of the Old Testament and Boy, I'm, I'm going through First and Second Kings and Chronicles, uh, even from the judges. Ever since they get into the land, it, it just doesn't go well. The Philistines are always attacking them and the Amorites and the Amalekites, and, and they're always at war, and they've got terrible leadership, and kings and judges who, or, or kings who lead them into sin do awful, awful things. So they're in the land, but, but they're not at home. And even when they, when they reach great pinnacles, so King David finally straightens some things out, and then Solomon has a wonderful reign of peace, but it's, it's 40 years. And then Solomon's gone, and Rehoboam comes, and the nation is divided, and, and it just goes downhill from there until finally they're kicked out altogether. And once again, we find Israel in exile, resident aliens in Babylon. And now, in, in, uh, as Peter is writing, Israel is under Roman rule. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. This is not what home is supposed to feel like. 
God's people have always lived as resident aliens. The New Testament church does exactly the same. The writer to the book of, of the book of Hebrews says, here we have no lasting city. We don't have a lasting city here. But we seek the city that is to come. And so Peter writes to these New Testament Christians, these first century believers who've come to faith in Jesus Christ through missionary uh, appeals, and um, they are now living in their homeland, but they're not at home yet. Archaeologists have found a letter that was written around this time, and it's written by an unbelieving Roman official. He's writing to a friend, and he comments with some admiration concerning the strange way that Christians are in the world. Listen to what he writes. He says, Christians are not marked out from the rest of mankind by their country or their speech or their customs. They dwell in cities both Greek and barbarian, each as his lot is cast, following the customs of their region in clothing and in food and in the outward things of life generally. Yet they manifest the wonderful and openly paradoxical character of their own state. They inhabit the lands of their birth, but as temporary residents thereof. They take their share of all responsibilities as citizens and endure all the disabilities as aliens. Every foreign land is their native land, and every native land is their foreign land. They pass their days upon earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. And so this unbelieving Roman official, as he's watching the New Testament churches, realizes they're, they're good citizens, but they don't, you can't identify them by their country or by their ethnic origin. You, they, don't, they don't act that way. And they participate as citizens in the world, but they, they don't belong to the world. They pass their days upon the earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. It's a lesson that the church here in America is... is starting to grasp with more and more clarity that we don't really fit here. We live in a culture that does not like the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is increasingly hostile to the truth of God. We've been very comfortable as a church in America. And so uh, uh, American and Christian, uh, those ideas have sort of been blended together. There's been a very strong movement of civil religion in America. And now we're realizing that the, the uh, society in which we, we live, the society in which we feel very much at home, the society is increasingly unhappy with us, increasingly um, opposing the truth of God in Jesus Christ. And, and we're going we're gonna to experience the reality of living as resident aliens. We're going to more and more experience the fact that though we live here, this is not our home. We don't fit here. The world, in that sense, does not want us here. And their agendas and their principles are just at fundamental odds with the, the principles and agenda of the church of Jesus Christ. We're going to experience more and more the reality of our actual status in the world. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It'll be a purifying thing. But it's also going to bring some pressures. It's also going to bring some hardships. It very well might bring persecution. How are we going to stand in an increasing opposing world? How are we going to stand in a world where, where uh, th there is aggressive unbelief and aggressive 
opposition to the truth of God, where the world is going to be aggressively pursuing us and pursuing our children and scorning faith and mocking those who believe, how is the church going to stand strong in that? How is the church going to stand with a compelling voice in that? How is the church going to uh, experience grace and peace multiplied to us in that? Because that's what Peter desires. That's what he expects. And the answer is, as we recognize who we are, that we, the church, is the elect children of God. Now, I know that's a, a, a word that raises some theological hackles. There's been a long history of arguing about this uh, in the church. But the, it's interesting, in the pages of the New Testament, there's, there's no arguing about the doctrine of election, and it's, and it's not treated like an esoteric theological idea. It's treated as a wonderful, foundational, essential truth that Christians are supposed to take great delight in, something that ought to thrill the hearts of every believer, because there are things that are eternally true of every believer. Peter mentions them here. Every believer has been elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. And I'd like to just take the rest of our time this evening looking at those. God's people, Christians, every individual Christian, has been elect according to the foreknowledge of God. What we, we, we know what that means. It means that before the world was ever formed, God chose to save you. He chose to give you to Jesus Christ, his son. And, and the reason that you believe, if you believe tonight, the reason you believe is because before the, the foundation of the world, God chose to bring you to faith. The foundation for your salvation has been laid in heaven. His foreknowledge is his determination before you ever existed to both create you and recreate you, and uh, bring you to living faith in Jesus Christ. That is the reason that you are a Christian. That's the foundation of your existence as a Christian. The, the apostles talk about election freely because there's almost no doctrine in Scripture more suited to the training of God's people in their identity and to give them security and hope and grace and peace multiplied in a difficult life, in an opposing world, there's almost no doctrine better suited to this task than the doctrine of election. And so when the apostles talk about Christians, when they talk about the church, they refer to them as the elect of God. It's not an esoteric doctrine. It's at the heart of how they thought about being a Christian. Let me give you some examples. We have Peter here on record referring to these Gentile believers as the elect of God. <coughs> Paul, just I can give you many examples from Paul, but here Titus 1.1. Paul is servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. In Romans 8, remember, he says, Who shall lay any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
You find the similar thing in James, James 2, verse 5. Listen, my brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Elect and chosen, it's the same word. John writes in 2 John 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And so you'll find James and John and Peter and Paul all talking about Christians using this word elect. Now, where did they learn that? Is this something that Paul kind of just came up with and was teaching the rest of it? And of course not. They learned it from Jesus. This is how Jesus talked about those who belong to him. So in John 15, 16, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Jesus wants his disciples to know that the reason they are his disciples is because he in love chose them as his disciples. And that is true of all of his disciples. So Jesus speaks in various places in the Gospels of uh, the saints as the elect. Let me give you some examples. Mark 13, 20. If the Lord had not cut short these, the, the, the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. You have the same word, Greek word there, used twice. But for the sake of those whom he chose, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Matthew 24, 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. You see, they got it from Jesus, and it's an essential core to understanding who you are and, and to understand what's happened to you. It means that, that you're a Christian precisely because God knew you before you existed and loved you and claimed you. Richard Sibbs writes, we had a Savior before we were born. We had a Savior before we were born. John Flavel, another Puritan writer, says of the comfort that this brings, God, as God did not at first choose you because you were high, so he will not forsake you because you are low. The, the, the Bible and the New, the New Testament writers, they, they delight in the truth of God's election. Paul's uh, text in Ephesians 1 is classic example of this. Blessed be the God and Father. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So if you look at all the blessings that you have in the gospel, in your salvation, you look at the blessing of, uh, of justification, that God is willing to declare you righteous by virtue of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Why has God the Father done that? And the answer is because he gave you to Jesus before the foundation of the world. Your justification is rooted in God's election. Sanctification. Why does God sanctify you? Because he, he chose to make you holy. You see, his election, as we see here, secondly, it's an election in the sanctification of the Spirit. Election is always an election to holiness. 
Those whom he foreknew, Paul says, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Think of the comfort of that. If you believe, it isn't just a decision that you made. It's a decision that God the Father made just as surely as he called you, uh, the galaxies right into being with the word of his mouth. God also called you to be his son and his daughter. And everything that he's done then in the history of, the, of redemption, God has done in order to accomplish what he set out to do when he called you to be his child. When he gave you to Jesus Christ, your salvation is not rooted fundamentally in your experiences. It's not rooted fundamentally in your profession. It is rooted fundamentally in God's proclamation. It's an incredible foundation. And if God is, if he's chosen to give you to Jesus, then can anything separate you from Christ? Of course not. If God be for us, who can be against us? Think of the comfort this gives in your sanctification because God's election is unto sanctification. He didn't just choose you in order that you might get saved and then, and then you're, you know, he just hopes you make the best of it. He chose you to make you holy and blameless. He chose you in the sanctification of the Spirit. Those whom he chose to save, he gives the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit that brought you to faith in Jesus Christ at the first, that Spirit will continue that work until he presents you in the presence of God the Father, in the presence of Jesus Christ, holy and spotless. How can you know that's going to be true? Because it's rooted in the election of God. And God's election and calling stand. They're certain. Paul writes, the Lord knows those who are his. You've been elected. Young people and boys and girls, uh, people will challenge your faith. Uh, and they'll say, you know, the only reason you're a Christian, let's just be honest, is because you were raised in a Christian home. Uh, Muslim children who are raised in, Muslims ho in Muslim homes, they become Muslims. Um, you just Hindu children, uh, whatever the religion is. And, and so your faith is nothing but a sociological phenomenon. If you'd been raised in, a, in a, um, an unbelieving home, in, a, in an atheistic home, you'd be, you'd be atheist. So, so stop acting like there's something special about you. Stop acting like, um, you know, there's, there's, you have some special relationship with God. Your faith is nothing but a sociological phenomenon. How will you respond to that? It's true. Muslim children growing up in Muslim homes generally become Muslim and and Hindu children growing up in Hindu homes generally are Hindu. It's absolutely true. But see, the beauty of the gospel is that you can know without a shred of doubt, you are not a Christian. If you are a Christian, if you are a born-again believer, and you've confessed your sin, and you believe that Jesus Christ alone is sufficient, and you have a desire in your heart to know him and to serve him, you can know without a shadow of a doubt you did not get that simply as a sociological reality because what has happened to you, you see, is that you've been born again into a living hope and only God the Father can do that. That if you are really a Christian, it is because God before the foundation of the world placed you in a, in a context, in a Christian home, where you would be taught the, the Bible and taught the gospel, and then God the Holy Spirit it came and turned the flame on so that truth you were hearing 
became the truth of your life. You're a Christian because you were elected. Not because you were raised in a Christian home. That was just the context. That was just God's preordained means of bringing you to faith in Jesus Christ. If you are really a Christian, it's because before the foundation of the world was laid, God knew you, God loved you, God named you, and called you to be his very own. And that is true of every Christian. Let God be true and every man a liar. It's incredibly comforting to think that God knows my name God claimed me. God gave me to Jesus. So why did Jesus come? We read all these wonderful things that Jesus does. Uh, Jesus gives his life. Jesus perfectly obeys all the laws, and then he offers his life as a sacrifice, and Jesus is raised from the dead. Why did he do all that? He did not do all that hoping that some people somewhere would respond to him. Jesus did all that because he knew you. you he loved you. You had been given to, you, to him. And he knows those who are his, and he went to the cross. He, he, he obeyed the Father, and he went to the cross and offer, offered up his life for the elect sons and daughters of God. He loved you. He loved and knew you. And so Peter then wraps this up, that you've been elect in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You've been elect for obedience to Jesus. And, and that is not like the bad news at the end of the good news. That is the freedom. That's the word for freedom. Paul, Peter's going to go on and talk about the life that they once lived, engaging in, in orgies and drunkenness. And, and he says the time has passed for all that. You don't belong to that world any longer. You have been set free from bondage to self and bondage to sin, and you have been made a servant of the Most High God. You are now free to obey Jesus. The gospel is not simply that I'm saved from my sin. The gospel is that, that Jesus has eradicated the pollution and the power of sin and set me free, and by his transforming grace, I can walk in a newness of life. I can be a different kind of person. And it's slow, and there are setbacks that are heartbreaking, and sometimes I don't see it very well in my own life, but the truth is, you see, that when God saves, he saves to the uttermost. And he transforms us. He has elected us to be made in the image of his son so that Jesus might be the firstborn of many brothers. Isn't it wonderful you've been saved for obedience to Jesus? You sense how pure and good and holy and, and, and free that is to serve Jesus with your life, and Jesus with your time, Jesus with your money, Jesus with your body, Jesus with your mind. You've been free to that. You've been free to obey Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. This would be a reference again to the Old Testament. And if you remember your Old Testament, we went through the book of Exodus a while back now. But when Moses brought the people to Mount Sinai and consecrated them as his covenant people, there was a ceremony, a ceremony of consecration. Animals were sacrificed. Their blood was gathered into a big bowl. And some of the blood was sprinkled on the altar. And then Moses took a hyssop branch and the other leaders, and they would dip that hyssop branch in the bowl and they would sprinkle it. They'd sprinkle the blood on the people. And by being sprinkled with the blood, 
You see, it was a, it was a, a sign that you belonged to the covenant. You were those purchased by atoning blood. You belonged to God the Father. You were his covenant people. And that is what Peter is reminding these Gentile believers about, that they are the people of God. It's a sign of identity and belonging. They've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. They are sealed. They are his. They've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, and because those things are true, then Peter could pray with absolute confidence, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Do you live in an opposing world? Yes. Do we live with our own weak selves? Do we live with failure? Do we live with stumbling? Do we live with sin? Do we live with things that, that to the outside eye and the untrained eye would be just reasons for discouragement, reasons for despair? Of course we do. And some of you tonight maybe are there just discouraged. It's been so hard. It's been so long. If someone would just sit down with you and ask you honestly, how are you doing, you'd have a hard time not crying. Peter wants you to hear what God wants you to hear, right? The Spirit wants you to know tonight that because of the electing love of God the Father, it is the desire of the God who made the universe and the God who created you that grace, His grace, and His peace be abundantly lavished upon you. God wants you right in the context where you are, in the circumstances that you find yourself in. God wants you to stand on this rock, to stand on this foundation. I am the elect son of God. I am the elect daughter of the Father. I am not an orphan. I am a son. I'm a daughter. I'm an heir. Grace and peace are multiplied to me. You see, that'll change the way you live in the world because everything in this life is passing. It's all fleeting. It just slips by. But there is a truth that will never pass away. There's a truth that cannot be shaken by the circumstances and the trials of life. And that truth is that God the Father knew you. God the Father loved you. God the Father claimed you, gave you to Jesus. He has elected you. And the, the election, right, the, the, the electing love of God is going to see you all the way through. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. The devil and all of his hosts could personally take you on, and it wouldn't matter. The world could line up one after another, all six, some billion of them, and, and oppose you and scream at you and, and revile you, and it, it doesn't matter. If God is for you, with his electing sovereign love and grace and peace in Jesus Christ, who can be against you? Do, you? do you see why we don't have to be afraid of anything? We, we don't have to fear anything? God is for us. We are the elect children of God. And so, brothers and sisters, as you go into another week, a week that God, your Father, has ordained for you, a week that Jesus Christ walks with you, a week where the Holy Spirit will be your ever-present helper and comforter and guide, you can go grace 
and peace multiplied to you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, who are we? Why would you elect us? We're full of sin, proud, complacent, apathetic. We're worldly in so many ways. And Father, the honest truth is is that there there are lost people in the world today who in so many ways are better people than we are. And yet, Father, for some unknown reason, you chose to give us to Jesus. You chose to make us heirs of heaven. You chose to make us the bride of Jesus Christ. You chose to bestow glory and honor and grace upon us. And there is no reason whatsoever that you should do this except you chose to do it. And Jesus came then to seal that electing love to us. And the Holy Spirit's been given to apply it to us. And so we lack nothing, and Father, we thank you. Oh, Lord, I pray that humility and gratitude would be the hallmark of our, of our lives. And that no matter what difficulties we might find ourselves in today, it it just doesn't compare to the the magnificent truth about us and that these trials even are from your hand, that our eternal joy might be all the greater. So, Father, I pray that you would equip us with this truth, help us to delight in what we are, the elect children of God. And may that define how we live, how we think. Move us to praise. Teach us to worship. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who accomplished this great work of redemption. May we live our life for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.